So we're taking a, a, a bit of a break, a two-week break uh, for Easter and Palm Sunday. Uh, we're going to be moving from 2 Thessalonians to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be looking particularly this morning um, at the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus through the lens of Luke. We're going to be reading verses nine, or chapter 19, verses 28 uh, to 44. 28 to 44. So with that, let's turn to God's Word. You can follow along in your bulletins or your Bibles. Hear God's Word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount, what is called the Olivet, he sent two disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on, with, tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise, and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Once again, Lord, we ask for the power of your spirit to be at work in our hearts. We thank you for the word. We ask that you would use me despite my own weaknesses, that your glory would be manifest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. FOMO. Have you experienced it? Well, maybe you're experiencing it right now, ironically, as you wonder, what is FOMO? Did I miss something? Um, it's, it's a common uh, acronym that people use a lot. It means fear of missing out. When I was a first semester freshman in college, I would stay up way too late to make sure that I didn't miss out on some potential social activity with my dorm mates. After a while, I realized the only thing that I was missing out on was sleep, right? That was it. Now, sometimes uh, there are events that, for legitimate reasons, we don't want to miss out on. Uh, we have little Elias was baptized today, but I imagine when, when Holda was giving birth that 
Isaac did not want to miss out on that moment, right? That would not be a moment to miss out on. Encounters and experiences that we know we'll regret if we miss them. Uh, Maybe a birth of a child, a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance to meet a personal hero or some significant celebration uh, that comes. Well, this morning, I want to suggest to you that there's something greater, greater than those things, greater than the birth of your child, greater than meeting your personal hero, greater than some significant celebration, family celebration. And this is an opportunity and the regular daily opportunities that we have to bless the name of the King of Kings. Really, Rob? Really? That's greater than having a baby? That's greater than meeting my hero? Maybe praising the Lord doesn't seem worthy of FOMO to you. I want to convince you otherwise. But, but I actually, I get it. I get it. It's hard to see why praising the Lord would be seen as such an incredible opportunity. But this is exactly what the psalmist feels here when he says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul long, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. How does the psalmist get to that place where that's what he is like? He longs and faints. He, he desires so much to be in the courts of the Lord to worship. And as we consider the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and the praise that is given to him, the chiding of the Pharisees, as we consider Jesus' response that if they don't sing, the very rocks will cry out, I want to suggest to you, don't let the rocks cry out on your behalf. The King of Peace has come. There's a great uh, song from my childhood that I remember, and it had hand motions and everything, but uh, it went something like this. Ain't no rock going to sing in my place. As long as I'm alive, I'll glorify his holy name. I'm not going to sing it. I'll just state it like that. That's, how do we get to that place where that's my heart, that I would not be robbed of the opportunity to sing God's praise. And I'm going to look at this in, in, in basically two parts in a conclusion. First is our reason to sing. Secondly, why we don't sing. And then how the Lord puts a song in our mouth. So our reason to sing. First, our reason to sing the King of Peace has come. He is the King. The story of the gospel account uh, in the gospel of Luke and really all the gospels up to this point has been one of Jesus being revealed, being shown to be the Christ, the Messiah, the one who'd come to deliver his people, the promised king. And of course, as he reveals himself as the king, it is consistently not what the people expect, Right? Uh, I always bring it up at that point where Jesus says, you are indeed the Christ. And Jesus says, I must go suffer and die. And Peter says, no, that's not the way. That's not the way of the Messiah. That's not the way of the king. Three times in the Gospel of Luke up to this point, Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer 
and die. And yet, every single time, it seems to land on deaf ears or confused ears. What does that even mean? It was not the expectation for the Messianic king who was promised. He was supposed to ride into Jerusalem on a war horse and take back Jerusalem from Rome and reestablish that great Davidic throne that had existed hundreds and thousands of years earlier. After all, this is what was promised way back. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, this was promised that there would be a scepter on the throne. Genesis chapter 49, this is what uh, was, was uh, bl- the blessing of Jacob to his sons. And he says of Judah, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That was the promise given all the way back to the fathers long ago that the scepter would not depart. And then you come up to to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation great. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. Kings shall come from you. And then he comes to David and he says, David, you're my son. And your son is going to reign on this throne forever. That's the promise. And of course, it doesn't happen. David's literal son, Solomon, ends up sinning in his own way. The kingdom is split. Eventually, the kingdoms get exiled. One off to Assyria, the, the southern kingdom, then off to Babylon. And there is no more Israel proper. People return, but it's not the same. They're under some authority, whether it's the Persians or the Babylonians or the Greeks or eventually Rome. And so here they are at this moment in time, and they're saying, where's this King David, this greater David who's going to come and restore to us this great nation? And here's Jesus, the king coming into Jerusalem. And we see it. He performs signs and wonders. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He teaches with authority. He proclaims the good news of the kingdom. People are excited. They're marching to Jerusalem. This is the moment. And they they see he has authorized us to go to get this donkey. He's going to ride in to Jerusalem. In fact, we see... Christ's kingliness, even in that authorizing, right? Here, he sends two disciples over to get this, uh, to get this donkey's cult, this cult. And it's a little bit of a strange story, and we can sometimes think, what, why, why all of this sort of machination? Why didn't they just say they found a donkey and then went? Well, part of this was to show forth God's authority, We see this in a couple ways. One is he commands his disciples to do something, and they go and do it. Not only that, but we see in his sovereign authority that he knows exactly what's going to transpire because he has ordained it, because he is the king. Right? Go, find this cult, 
And when you go to untie it, if someone says to you, why are you doing this? This is what you should say. And then a few verses later, what happens? The disciples go, they untie the colt. The guy who owns the colt says, why are you doing this? And the man and the disciples say, because the Lord has need of it. God's sovereign authority. King Jesus ruling. He has authority. He shows it in his power. He shows it in his prophetic word. We can see Jesus' power and authority. Nevertheless, it's not quite what we would have expected from a king. What would a typical king ride a horse or, or a, a colt? No, they'd ride a horse. A typical king would have gone out to find this donkey and they would have just taken it. They would have said, King has it, it's ours, and by force, by power and virtue of the sword at my side, I'm going to take this thing and, you know, sort of like um, requisition it, right? I don't know, what, what is the, the, the word when, a, when somebody commandeers a vehicle? Where is Seth? Isn't that right? Can you do that? Is that a thing? It's not a thing. But you can imagine a world where a king said, I need this, this, and I'm taking it for myself. They come with power and authority. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He comes with power and authority, but he doesn't need a sword. He declares it by the power of his word. Do this, and it happens. The Messianic king's power and authority is greater. Here's what you will find. Here's what you will be asked. Here's what you will say. And he doesn't do it with force against the will of the cult owner. Rather, he divinely wills that this donkey owner would himself give that donkey away. And all of it is according to the plan. We go back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is why a donkey. This is why... Uh, this scene happens, it's because it was prophesied of old. Back in, in Zechariah uh, chapter 9, which we read earlier in our service. You can turn there in your bulletins. Uh, here it says, in the call to worship, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? And earlier when I read from that Genesis 49 passage of, the, of Judah, you will notice that there was that promise of riding on a donkey. So now we have to step back and ask the question, why a donkey? We have such, uh, in our culture, negative view of a donkey, right? A donkey is you know, mocked in cartoons. It tends to be a little more, um, I don't know, less noble, you might say, than a horse. Um, but what, what does this have to do with, with what's going on in the Bible? Here's the reason. We think of the donkey and the horses opposing each other, and they are in a way. The horse represents authority, power, war. It, it represents the king conquering. So in the book of Revelation, when we see Christ come, he's riding a white horse to bring judgment. So it's not that Jesus doesn't ride a horse. But why is he riding a donkey here? Well, in the Old Testament, when a king, and there were kings that rode on donkeys in the Old Testament, when they would ride a donkey, it was a symbol not of war, but of peace. 
It was a symbol of, I don't need all my, my, my entourage behind me, my soldiers. I'm riding through the city safely on this donkey. And not only that, but it was a picture of humility. See, Jesus came as he entered into Jerusalem, not with a sword, but he came humbly as the king, entering into the city, willingly going to make peace with God for us. And here's our reason to sing. This is our reason to sing. The promised Messiah went into Jerusalem. The sovereign king, with all authority and power over heaven and earth, who knows the beginning from the end, goes into Jerusalem, riding on that donkey, knowing that he's going to die. A plan established from eternity in order to make peace between us and God. Our reason to sing is that the sovereign king of peace has come. I want to come back to this at the end. Just think about this. The one who rules and reigns over all things, who has all power and authority, who can conquer in an instant by the, by the power of his voice, humbles himself to the place of riding into a city that will reject him. That we, sinners, might have peace with God. That's a reason enough to sing right there, but let's keep going because I think there's more reason. But to know that reason, we have to delve deeper into our issue. Uh, we don't want Jesus as a king. That's our real problem. We don't want this kind of a king. Uh, we want a different kind of king. I want to go back to this Zechariah 9, because one, one thing that happens when we, when we sort of follow on these, um, these Old Testament trails is sometimes we lose a little bit of the context. And so I want to go back. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me to Zechariah Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, right toward the, toward the end. And I wanted you to just notice the context that is here in Zechariah 9 and following. This is a picture of the coming king of Zion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt of the foal of a donkey. Now, that's how the king enters. But listen to the next words. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. He's going to make peace. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the strongholds, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And it goes on to talk about how the Lord will save his people. The sound of a trumpet, whirlwind. And I just point that out because... Even though they were rightly looking at Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey as a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, they still thought 
Here's the moment when he's going to take up God's people as an arrow and as a sword to defeat Greece, or in this case, Rome. They still have this idea that what was going to happen was going to be some glorious battle. In Psalm 118, in this psalm, uh, you get a picture of, of the king. He is, uh, he is outside of the camp. He is fighting and he is battling. Um, and then toward the end of this picture of the, the Messiah coming in, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in his eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then we have another voice. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords upon the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Again, this is the psalm they were singing as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. But you'll know in this that they're crying out, Save, we pray. Give us success. May the conquering king indeed conquer. And in all of this, they were thinking, this is it. Here comes the king. It was great expectations. He would come and conquer. Of course, they didn't consider other prophecies like those in Isaiah that talked about a suffering servant. All they saw was King Jesus coming. And so the crowd sings those words, Hosanna, or blessed be the name of the Lord. But of course, we know in a few short, in a short while, there would be a similar, similar crowd gathered yelling out, crucify him. And where were the disciples in that moment? Were they singing? Were the disciples in the upper room saying, here's the moment. God has brought salvation. Jesus is on the cross. Salvation is about to come. Were they, what were they doing? While the song was crucify him, the disciples had scattered and left Jesus at the cross with very few exceptions. They had gone and hid. And they had thought, this is not what we had signed up for. This is not what we expected. I think the greatest hindrance to our praising God with our lips, to singing his praise, is because we don't understand and recognize his lordship even when it's being recognized what do i mean by that what i mean is this when things don't go according to our plan when things don't go according to our our ideas or our ideals of how life should be when our prayers are not answered in the way in the manner that we would like when the world does not treat us well, when the culture seems to be crumbling around us, when wars and sorrows and suffering persist, when our sin remains and continues to beat us down, when our relationships are struggling, we say, Lord, this is not what lordship looks like. And do we sing our praises at that moment? No. 
Instead of going to the Lord, the sovereign king of peace, who guarantees our salvation by his love and singing his praise in spite of our circumstances, instead of doing that, instead of looking for his mercy and grace in the midst of it, what we do is we grumble. We complain. We mope. I mope. Anybody else mope? We say in our hearts, well, if I were in charge, things would be very different. And let me tell you something. If you were in charge or I was in charge, they would be very different. Devastatingly different. You see, the Lord of glory who came to earth, he sees our pride, he sees our rebellion, he sees our sin. And despite our lack of understanding, he patiently endures suffering so that we might have peace with God. Despite all of that, he says, I'm going into Jerusalem. Friends, ain't no rock going to sing in my place, right? As long as I'm alive, I'm going to glorify his name. For the Lord of glory went into Jerusalem as the king to suffer and to die. Well, while the disciples might have been confused and didn't fully grasp what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah, how he would save his people, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they just confront Jesus. You see, Jesus, if he had truly been the Messiah, what would the Pharisees, if if they were to say, no, yeah, maybe Jesus is the Messiah, what what would have had to been the case for them to say that? They... The Messiah would have had to have confirmed them in their approach to God. He would have gone to them. He would have established himself as one of them. He would take their lead and done what they desired for what they thought was most significant. Because they believed that they were the ones on God's side. When Jesus went to sinners and tax collectors and hung out with women and Samaritans he disqualified himself as the Messiah because no king of Israel, at least in their mind, would have defiled themselves in such a manner. This is not what the Messiah was to be like. So here in our text, they call to Jesus and say, go rebuke your disciples. They should not be calling you the Messiah. They should not be singing songs to you. So Jesus says, well, if they don't sing, Rocks will cry out. Why would Jesus say that? Why would he say, well, if they don't sing, then the creation itself will sing? Why would he say that? Well, he says it no matter what happens to him, he still reigns as Lord. He is still king. His word is eternal. His power is unstoppable. His love is everlasting. His peace is sure. His kingdom is forever. And therefore, what do we sing? I'm not letting any rock take ownership of that. No rock is going to sing in my place. Here's the king of kings. Jesus continues on his journey. And as he goes, he comes to the, down the hillside. He's coming from the east. He comes down the hillside through the gardens And he's approaching the walls of the city. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he weeps. He weeps. 
He weeps because he knows that the city will not see him as he is. The king. They'll reject him and they will crucify him. He weeps because he loves Jerusalem. Scripture says he came to his own his own did not receive him. They were his own. He weeps because he understands the full depth and breadth of the rebellion of God's people. He weeps because he knows that the only way to save is by enduring the full wrath and curse of God for their sin. Friends, it was only through that humble king that we can have peace with God. He weeps because he sees how those people in Jerusalem, how the whole world trades earthly glory or the heavenly glory for earthly Jerusalem. He looks at the city of Jerusalem and he weeps and he says, and he, he prophesies that the, the walls of this city are going to come crumbling down. The, 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 the enemies of God are going to come and they're going to destroy the city because of the sin of the city that's going to be no more. And the problem was that Israel so longed for that restoration, for that earthly city, they had lost sight of the true kingdom of God, that, that eternal kingdom. And while he prophesies the end of Jerusalem, when the stones of the once great city are scattered, he also goes into that city. He didn't, he didn't stand there and think, oh, be gone. I'm going to a new city. He enters into the city. And like the city itself, that it was going to face destruction, he went to his own destruction. The king came to bring peace to the city, but not just to that city, but to the world. And though that city may be destroyed, guess what? Those stones, after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, those stones lay dormant. They don't sing out. Do you want to know why? Because the Lord Jesus is building a kingdom of people from every tribe, tongue and nation to sing his praise all across the globe his name is proclaimed today he's lifted up and worshiped his name is on the lips of God's people and as long as I'm alive ain't no rock gonna sing in my place what about you what about you as long as I'm alive I'm gonna glorify his Holy name. Friends, we don't understand all the circumstances of our life in the world. But the one thing that we can cling to and know for truth is that the king reigns, sits enthroned on high, and he has secured for us peace with God through his blood. Let's sing his praise.